Hello, fans of mysteries and fans of horses. Welcome to the show that puts them together for your enjoyment. This is Horse Mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. My name's Lisa Williamson. And welcome to, is this episode three of this season of Horse Mysteries? And what's the title of this week's show, dear? Untouchable. Untouchable. Okay. You but guessed that was a racehorse name. I think it's, I know, I thought it was about MC Hammer. <laughs> Wrong again. He's uh, the owner of a horse in the Oakland area. No, is he? No. No. Okay. I don't think he has money for that anymore. What do you say? The bottom fell out of parachute pants? <laughs> you know how I like to start with a little bit of horse bits before we get to the, the meat of the show. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking today about the expression, never look a gift horse in the mouth. And my question would be, why would you want to look a gift horse in the mouth anyway? Well, I think the phrase came from originally people thinking they got a good deal when they were presented with something for free. Yeah. Only to find out later that it was not the case and simply based on the age of the horse, because you can age a horse by its teeth. Okay. So, and when we're talking about teeth, we're talking about incisors, which are the teeth that you see when you curl the lips up or back. Uh-huh. So as with humans, horses have two sets of teeth, baby teeth and adult teeth. Okay. And so we can age a horse very, very precisely with baby teeth. I see. So the central, when they're born, they have only gums, no teeth. Can, but I, can I ask how long is a horse considered to be a, a baby, like in our... In our... Uh, that, that is something that is up for debate, and it depends on the horse's age. But generally speaking, anywhere from two to five, a horse is still considered young. Young, okay. Uh, if you're a thoroughbred, then you're fully grown and you're in work at two. Okay. But, but that doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that they're fully grown. They might still have some issues that mm-hmm. come from still growing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah, as far as the teeth go, basically four and a half would be when the last baby teeth are shed yeah. and the permanent, the last permanent incisors come in. So yeah, when a horse is born, it's got no teeth, but within 24 hours, typically the central incisors will come in. Okay. And then it's the laterals. Like how prominently? Like they start to peak or like yeah, fully appear? Yeah, they start to fully appear. Like they start wow. to go through the gums. Yeah, right? yeah. And then the lateral incisors come in. And then by the time the baby's nine months old, the uh, corner incisors will come in. Mm-hmm. And then likewise, as far as shedding those teeth, two and a half, the central incisors are shed, three and a half, the lateral incisors are shed, and then four and a half, the corner incisors are shed. So okay. So you really like, can accurately... Yeah. It's kind of yeah. like looking at, you know, a little kid in grade one and they have no front teeth, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's a pretty typical grade one picture. And yeah. then likewise, you could look at a horse's teeth and go, oh yeah, this horse is this age. The baby teeth also have a little bit different appearance as well. They're more shorter, they're more upright, they're whiter. They have a distinct root or kind of curve towards the gums because they're like baby teeth. They're not deep. They don't have a root. Sure. Whereas adult teeth, when they come in, again, in the centrals, that'll be two and a half corners or laterals, three and a half and corners, four and a half. It takes about half a year to grow down. So we'll say a horse has a full mouth, which means it might have all the adult teeth in but if the corners haven't grown down to meet the other ones it's not yet called a full mouth in wear so we can very accurately age that horse to five years of age just based on how 
far down the teeth have grown, etc. Okay. Which of the adult teeth are grown in, which of the baby teeth have been shed. So the baby, yeah, the baby teeth fall out, then kind of like our teeth mm-hmm. would come out. Yeah. Do so they what, have, do they, is there a horse fairy that comes and gives them money for their not, teeth? There is oh, not. There is well, not. Yeah. So then, yeah, basically as the horse gets older, you know, I always say when I'm teaching, you can fairly accurately, see, you know, give or take a year, six months to a year with a horse under five years of age, but it gets decreasingly accurate as the horse gets older. So five to 10, it's give or take a couple years and then 10 and older, it's give or take five years. But there are some markers that you're going to look for. And there's things like hook in the upper corner incisor that appears when the horse is seven. Then another hook appears that gets worn off when the horse is eight. Then another hook appears anywhere from 10 to 13, but only in some horses. The other big marker is something called the Galvain's groove, which is sort of a line that looks like it appears on the top by the gums and works its way down. Really what's happening is the horse's teeth are wearing off. So you're just seeing more of the the tooth exposed because while the tooth is wearing off at the bearing surface, the gums are receding at an actual faster rate than the teeth wear off. So you're seeing more of the tooth exposed as the gums recede is what's happening. But I have read recently that only 40% of horses have this Galvain's groove. Okay. Galvain was a guy who kind of a, was a self-professed horse whisperer who was from Australia back around 120 years ago and he became very famous. It was like magic that he could just go in and look at a horse and say, oh, it's this age. And people are like, what? Yes. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. In the olden days, people would do things where they would file a horse's teeth down because the big thing that you're going to look for with a really old horse is they'll have very long teeth because the gums have receded a lot yeah. and very sloping teeth. So unscrupulous horse dealers in the old age would file the horse's teeth down to make them shorter. Sure. Um, The other thing that you'll look for is they'll have um, cups in their teeth and dark marks in their teeth, usually if they're between, uh, say, 7 and 10. And so people would actually burn with, like, hot pokers, marks in their teeth to try and say to buyers, oh, this horse is 8 or 9. So there's a lot of things that, yeah, we can tell by looking at a horse's mouth, but there was actually a study that was done about 20 years ago, and they said, really, it's very difficult to be accurate looking at a horse's mouth. Um, Like an adult horse. Yeah, an adult horse. And this is people who are trained in doing so. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in spite of that, however, yeah, if you've got a general idea of what a horse's mouth looks like, yes, you can very accurately age the young horse. Harder to age very close to a specific date, the older horse, but you get an idea whether it's very young or very old. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I think I think actually what they're saying with that is be appreciative of what you're given. And yes, don't, that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah say, don't kind of go and go, oh, <laughs> this car is a little bit old for me. I'd rather have a new car yeah, you yeah. gave me. But yeah. yeah. Um, when something is free, mm-hmm. don't over uh, examine it, especially in front of the person who gave it to you. Yes. Yeah. They're trying to be nice. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes they're just trying to. Well, as we know, there's no such thing as a free horse. Exactly. Yeah. So I think as long as everyone goes in with their eyes open, then we're good. Right. Okay. So. All right. Well, let's move on to the main course here. This is Untouchable. Mm-hmm. Where do we start? We will start with the setting. So this was um, spring of 2016. What were you doing in spring of 2016? What was I doing in spring of 2016? 
I have no idea. Me neither. <laughs> I know. It's just like same old, same old, I guess. Nothing much going on. And the location for this particular incident was the historic Flint Ridge Riding Club, which is located at 4625 Oak Grove Drive in La Cañada, Flint Ridge, California. La Cañada? Mm-hmm. It's spelled like Canada. But, uh, but would have the tilde over the, uh, mm-hmm. over the N. So have you ever heard of Flint Ridge? No. No. I've talked about it before. You'll know why once we get into this. So Flint Ridge right. is actually the oldest riding club west of the Mississippi. It's more than a century old, which doesn't sound like a lot around, you know, if you're in Europe or even on the East Coast. But here on the West Coast, 100 years old is significant. Yes. So it is a 40-acre private riding club that's home to 180 horses and currently has 42 employees as of, as of 2022. Okay. Um, it's situa- situated in an environment... Um, it's nestled in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains, so it's only 12 miles from downtown L.A. Wow. Yes. So basically, it's the figurative second home to some of the biggest and richest names in the area, people who are famous and some who are soon to be famous. Um, it's a club for the who's who of top riders, top horses, and those in the related social scene. Okay. So currently, again, um, as of 2019, um, it's registered with tax-exempt status as a non-profit hmm. under the class of amateur sports. Monthly membership for the club is $190 a month, which does not include initiation dues. Um, and in 2019, the club generated $3 million in revenue. Hmm. Those initiation dues are pretty heavy, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I was in Hong Kong, that was the case. And uh, the place we were at in Hong Kong, there was a 25-year wait list as well. Sure. But what is the incident? So in the spring of the 2016 horse show season at Flint Ridge, the club very quietly changed the name of the Jimmy A. Williams Oval, which was a grand competition ring, and simply renamed it Ring One. Hmm. Then the following year in 2017, over on the East Coast, the U.S. Equestrian Federation dropped, dropped Jimmy Williams' name from their Jimmy Williams Lifetime Achievement Award. So quite suddenly, most traces of this legendary trainer, now dead two decades, but who had long been a household name in the show world, seemed to have been erased. Hmm. So your question is, who is Jimmy Williams? <laughs> I'd heard of him. I've never seen him. I know he came up here. Jan, who you'll remember, was telling me about him riding at Milner Downs one time. Okay. And I don't know that he competed, but he was always on the horses, did a lot of schooling, and she said he had a horse, and he just rode it around the showgrounds with no bridle. Hmm. And he just rode wherever, and it went wherever, which this would be probably 20 years ago that was absolutely unheard of yeah that someone would be riding a horse with no bridle around hmm. at a horse show ground. what is he a natural horseman <clears throat> kind of okay so who was he jimmy a williams was a highly celebrated elite riding coach and trainer who presided over flint ridge riding club from the 1950s until his death by natural causes in 1993 okay so it's more than 20 years ago um <laughs> So he's a much decorated <laughs> trainer. Time flies. Seems like 20 years ago. <laughs> um, he enjoyed celebrity-like status in the horse world. So what George Morris was to the East Coast show horse scene, Jimmy Williams was to the West Coast. 
So in George Morris's 2016 book, Unrelenting, he described Jimmy as, as the quote, master horseman, a master teacher. He was a star and bigger than life, end quote. Hmm. And George Morris is? George Morris, long chef, time. Chef to keep. Yeah, chef to keep, uh, also member of the U.S., Equestrian team, uh, the jumping team, writer of many books, clinician, and yeah, he was kind of the one of the proponents of the forward riding seat. You know, he he what he does not claim that he invented it, but he certainly promoted it heavily. Okay. And uh, maybe that, explain what that is then. So, <laughs> you brought that up. Yeah, uh, the I think if you we talked last time about how in the old days people thought. Horses would jump with their front legs sticking out in front of them and their back legs sticking out behind them. If you yeah, ever look at yeah. an old English hunting scene or any picture of horses jumping. But the other thing you'll notice is the people sitting straight upright. Mm. And that's how people used to ride in the olden days. Um, and then the Dienenzo brothers of Italy, they were military guys from about 100 years ago. And they developed something called the forward seat or the jumping seat where they actually leaned forward. And that actually put the rider's center of gravity more over the horse's center of gravity, sure. which allowed the rider to ride much more comfortably. Because if you sit straight up, when you go over a jump, you basically get whiplash every time. Mm -hmm. And then because the rider is more with the horse, the horse can jump higher, the horse can go faster. And so it created a revolution in in riding as far as jumping and jumping heights, jumping competitions. But... There was a definite style difference, especially between, say, the Germans or people in continental Europe, mm -hmm. and they would do a lot of sitting between jumps and holding until they would see their um, spot, and then they'd race the horse forward to the jump and um, jump over the jump. What the what the forward riding seat was is you just go up into that position and the horse gets balanced and it just canters underneath you and the rider doesn't really change and the horse just jumps up and matches your position and back down again. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it's less the rider, I don't know, kind of manhandling the horse. And I think that's something that allowed more women to become prominent because it's, yeah, it just takes a lot less, less muscle. Less yeah. control, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. That's interesting. This is a short dollop of Trollop here for Sneaky Dragon fans. Is um, you know, thinking about that is funny because Trollop has so many descriptions of hunting scenes, and so in my mind when I'm reading them, I picture everyone forward riding, of mm -hmm. course. But it never occurred to me before that yes, that's right. They would be doing that really awkward, mm -hmm. uh, almost like a weeble on top of a saddle right. style of like whipping around, mm -hmm. and it makes it even worse what's ha what they're doing. Yes, or it seems worse. I mean, I'm sure that's time. But that's what it was, and you just. You wrote you wrote a speed that was conducive to, mm -hmm. so they probably didn't ride as fast as some people would ride now, because it just wouldn't be comfortable for mm -hmm. them. It would be so awkward. The landings would be so difficult. Yes. And so, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh huh. Yeah. Williams, um, going back to the beginning with him, he was born <laughs> in a place called Elsinore, California, and okay. raised in El Monte. Um, his father was a horse dealer. So when I was talking about sorry, Elsinore, is that from? Uh... Is that from... Lord of the Rings? I don't know. No, I wasn't thinking Lord of the Rings. I was thinking from um, Tennyson. I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But yeah, when I was talking about horse dealers and people like filing horses' teeth off to make the teeth shorter and burning yes. um, you know, hot things into the horse's mouth to make yeah. the teeth yeah. look like they were younger, when we talk... When we use the word horse dealer, that's who we're talking about. So yeah. we're talking about like a used car salesman, the kind sure. of stereotypical used they're, car salesman of the horse yeah, world. they're... they're and sort of, sort of metaphorically, or not metaphorically, 
kind of turning back the odometer on the horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's essentially what that was about. Um, so <laughs> that's our yeah. dog you're hearing. Yeah. So that was a place called. There was a place called um, the L.A. Horse and Mule Auction. So that's basically where he was based from. Mm-hmm. But he also was a racehorse owner. So his son Jimmy Williams rode from, for him, and unfortunately, or whatever, I guess it didn't affect his life. He, uh, in grade eight, uh, Jimmy dropped out of school and then started riding full-time for his dad in the sales ring. Okay. And so his job was basically his dad would either have a horse commissioned or buy a horse, and then Jimmy would ride it through the ring while people bid on it. Sure. Um, and his dad would... So he had, must have had a bit of, been a really fast learner and, mm-hmm. on like yeah. getting a horse yeah, to the, ride nicely, which yeah. is something that I remember watching you do when you were younger. Mm-hmm. You just got an, any horse, it felt like, and you could make that horse look like butter mm-hmm. when you rode it, you know. And so I imagine he was sort of the same where he would get on horses and people were like, oh, that horse is just magical. Yeah, and they didn't have to do much in the sales ring. Like they're just kind of walking around. Mm, but oh, okay. at the same time, the sort of horses he would have had would have often been like wild broncos <laughs> yeah, or... Yeah old lame horses or whatever yeah and that's his job to kind of make them look a lot better than they actually are yeah but meanwhile his dad was outside the ring throwing rocks at him because that's what he would do because he wanted him to sit up straight and in quotation marks ride like a gentleman i see i see (laughs) so uh jimmy also later went on to work as a jockey in bush tracks as well so yeah racing not in so um, sort of endurance races i guess no no these are um oh like, when you say bush tracks you just mean like kind of out of the way yeah horse, very, horse race like uh, if you remember that movie we saw um lean on pete mm-hmm. so when that horse kind of went down from running at the bigger track and yeah, then they started yeah. taking him out and they were drugging him and doing all sorts of other things just to keep him sound cause yeah, yeah he wasn't sound he was going to break down um that's sort of a bush track, so sure. no rules. Yeah. Yeah. If so, people haven't seen the Nine Pete, we highly recommend it. Highly recommend, yes. So Williams then went on to serve in the US Army in World War Two and he was wounded there. He was awarded a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star for Valor. So after he recovered he was sent to the twenty six ten remount station in Florence, Italy. And there he studied dressage, he organized horse shows and horse races, and became part of an army entertainment troupe where he had a traveling horse and mule act. (laughs) I guess that's the sort of thing that, yeah, they did back then. Yeah. Anyway, once he returned to the U.S., uh, he opened a stock horse training barn in Escondido. So stock horse is Western. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He went against the grain, surprising the local cowboys and trainers when he used dressage principles to train his stock horses. Oh, he was a horse whisperer. Mm Mm-hmm. So he, his horse, Champagne, went on to earn the champion stock horse title in 1946, 1948, and 1950, uh, while his horse, Ben Jr., was champion Hackamore horse in 1949. Hmm. So I think we're kind of glossing over the fact that he would have had a really tough, hard life doing what yes. he was doing. Yeah, very much so. Like, it would have just been like, like hand to mouth. Mm-hmm. His dad would have been obviously a pretty brutal guy who swung rocks at him. Yeah. And so, not the not the greatest upbringing. No, no. I think that is a very good point. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, he was a champion rider, and it said Jimmy could do anything with a horse, no matter what the discipline. So, considered to be the best of the best, in 1956, Jimmy was hired as riding master for the exclusive Flint Ridge Riding Club. But Flint Ridge was not zoned for cattle. So, Williams ended up switching from stock horses to hunters and jumpers, and... We talked about that 
on a previous episode, so horses that do jumping, obviously. However, he finished all his English riding horses with Western touches, making sure that they could stop and spin like stock horses. So he stated that his goal was to have his horses trained. So it's like pushing an electric light switch. (laughs) So his horse skills were so unbelievable. He was described as a magician. He was looked on as an extraordinary horseman and phenomenal trainer who utilized innovative training techniques. And he wasn't afraid to borrow from other disciplines. Let's just stop right there for a second. I think that's an important part of this is the idea of, uh, because, you know, people who, the kind of wild west idea of mm-hmm. horse breaking yes. is pretty brutal. Yeah. You know, because it was supposed to be, you just needed to get it done really quickly. You needed mm-hmm. horses out on the range, you know, herding cattle and doing the drives and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. you just needed working horses. Yeah. And not a lot of refinement. And not a lot of refinement. And so someone like Williams coming in, taking dressage techniques, like taking from a different, more genteel discipline, mm-hmm. you know, English riding, and applying that to something that had been so traditionally brutal and mm-hmm. get her done. Yeah. Uh, must have seemed like a big revolution at that oh, yeah, time. For sure. In terms of like kindness to the horses, but also in like efficiency, or mm-hmm. at least bringing in new techniques that hadn't been tried before. And, mm-hmm. you know, in a world that was just, it's kind of the same thing we had when the whole, you know, quote unquote horse whisperer thing became a thing. Yes. And really was just importing different techniques from other disciplines into breaking horses in mm-hmm. a Western style. Yeah. And people are like, oh, it's a miracle. And you're like, well, it's just. People have been doing this forever in other disciplines. You yes. just don't know about it because uh-huh. it's such a hidebound, traditional, you know, cowboy thing with a bunch of crabby guys who don't want to change how mm-hmm. they do things. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And I think that's the big thing about the horse world is it's so traditional yeah. in so many, so many areas, like and, even as far as. And so many bad ways too, yeah, like so in many, horse racing and yeah. stuff like that, where there's just so many brutal, mm-hmm. you know, almost like just voodoo techniques that have no real value Mm -hmm. that are still performed because they have some sort of magical idea that it's going to work and Mm -hmm. make a horse better. Yeah, it worked on one horse and so they'll apply it for the next thousand horses, yeah, whether it works or not. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that is so true of the horse world. So yeah, Williams was respected and admired for his ability to tame wild horses and for the knack he had with difficult horses. So he trained dozens of champion horses, including the jumpers El Mio and Kid Shannon. Hmm. He was well known for spouting aphorisms, and one of his most frequently quoted was, it's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. That's a good one. Yeah. So he worked with the offspring of Hollywood stars and executives, as well as those of the business elite. He trained future Olympians, coached the U.S. equestrian team in Calgary from 1978 to 1980, and was the U.S. equestrian team's chef de keep from 1981 to 1982. So ultimately, 37 riders he developed went on to become international-level professional trainers, including Mary Mare Chapeau, we'll hear about her later, and Krasinski, again, um, <laughs> Hap Hansen, Sue Hutchison, Robert Ridland, Mason Phelps, Rob Gage, Ronnie Freeman, Linda Huff, and Ken Nordstrom. Ken Nordstrom we've talked about before because he was the guy who rode in Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit. He was the extra. So he was the one that jumped the big stone wall. Yeah, yeah. Bareback (laughs) with no bridle. Pretty amazing. Yeah, wearing fluffy house slippers. (laughs) (laughs) He must have, when he got the... uh... The telephone call asking if he'd be interested in doing that, he must have been, oh, sure, uh, you have to do it without a bridle. Oh, okay, well, that's going to be more difficult, but I think I can still do it. And wearing fluffy house slippers. What is going on here? 
Okay. So, um, yeah, Williams was described by some as movie star handsome, and he had also worked in the film industry, first at the age of 22 as a stunt double for Tyrone Power. So he appeared in films such as Jesse James, and later worked as a wrangler and horse trainer, most notably of the horse El Barado in a Disney film, The Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit, <laughs> with his student, uh, Ken Nordstrom, who was a rider, and with the horses in The Horse with the Flying Tail, which was... Another film that I saw when I was in Pony Club, it was a documentary okay. about the horse. Nautical was his name. Okay. And he was a wild horse that had been captured and it went on to be in the Olympic team. Yeah. In 1969, money from the filming of The Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit was used to build a new wing for junior activities at the Flint Ridge Riding Club. So students from Flint Ridge were used as extras in the film. Okay. Yeah. So, in addition to training and teaching, Williams was very connected to the executive levels with those in many disciplines of the horseshoe world. So, he was founder, director, and vice president of the Pacific Coast Horseshoe Association, and he was on the board of directors of the Pacific Coast Cutting Horse Association. He was granted the, the American Horseshoe Association Horseman of the Year Award in 1960, the second time the award was presented. And in 1977, he was given the California Professional Horseman's Association Horseman of the Year Award. He won the Patsy Award, which is a film award, okay. for training Alvarado for the Disney film The Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit. Uh, he was also given the Vaquero Award from the California Riding Club Association and was inducted into the National Reined Horse Hall of Fame. He was also a longtime member of the U.S. Equestrian Team Board of Directors. So that would be uh, involved in picking the Olympic team. Hmm. So in 1988, the U.S. Equestrian Federation created a Lifetime Achievement Award that they named after Williams. So a sterling silver award was commissioned and created by Tiffany's to resemble the cowboy hat that Williams constantly wore. Hmm. And in 1989, Williams himself became the first recipient of the U.S. Equestrian Federation's new Jimmy A. Williams Lifetime Achievement Award. The same year, Williams was also inducted into the U.S. Show Jumping Hall of Fame. So over the course of his career, Williams was recognized by three California governors for his contribution to the sport of horsemanship. Williams also had a reputation as a ladies' man and had been married six times. At the time of his death, he was in a decades-long relationship with trainer Susan Hutchison, a former student. She had moved in with him when she was 18 and he was 55. So as stated earlier, a number of historic institutions competitive organizations suddenly changed the names of various arenas, um, and trophies, thereby dropping any reference to the legendary trainer, Jimmy Williams, without providing any explanation. At Flint Ridge Riding Club, where Williams had ruled for decades, all memorabilia, paintings, and pictures connected to the man were removed. So this all happened more than 20 years after his death. Huh. Nothing official was stated at the time, but the rumors had circulated for decades. However, these whispers had been largely ignored for years. In 2017, Chronicle of the Horace reporter Molly Bailey reached out first to well-known Flint Ridge alumnus and then flew across the country to California to learn more. Her investigation involved multiple interviews with people who had previously ridden at Flint Ridge. Her story was first published in the journal in April 2018 using testimony from scores of young women who had previously ridden at Flint Ridge. All had been taken advantage of sexually by Jimmy Williams. 
The New York Times then picked up the story, doing their own in-depth investigation, which involved interviewing 38 former students of Jimmy Williams, as well as grooms, trainers, and officials, who each revealed that they had experienced or witnessed groping, kissing, and sexual assault by Jimmy Williams over the course of decades. The New York Times story broke on May 29, 2018. Jimmy Williams was alleged to have been a long-time sexual predator. He preyed on young girls, usually his own students. The survivors had remained quiet for years, and Williams' actions had not been secret. Some trainers on this circuit had regularly and openly referred to him as Jimmy the Child Molester, but at the time the comments could have been misconstrued as professional envy or hard feelings towards a highly successful competitive rival. Jimmy Williams, who always wore his signature cowboy hat and left a trail of cologne in his wake, publicly flaunted his reputation as a ladies' man, driving around at horse shows on a customized golf cart emblazoned with the message, Jimmy Williams is a clean old man. Amen. He possessed the ability to take something distasteful and turn it into something used to entertain, something that was socially sanctioned and accepted by those in power. He was a character, but in the worst sense of the word. Hmm. The harrowing stories that came out of the Chronicle of the Horse and the New York Times pieces exposed a sexually aberrant and unhealthy environment at Flint Ridge that was often enabled by the parents of Williams' students and driven by the parents' own desperation for success for their offspring in the show ring. This toxic mix of ambition and prestige set the stage for what was to come next. Instead of a unicorn-filled show barn of pigtails and ponytails riding in ribbons, the young girls ultimately lived out a nightmare on a daily basis when at the barn. So Flintridge, under the rule of Williams, had turned into a debauched and hostile environment where young women and children were preyed on relentlessly. And worse, these predations were ignored when reported to family or officials. <laughs> kind of like that gym, the gymnast's uh, mm-hmm. scandal. Too. Yes, yeah, very closely related to this that story. So the need for access to Williams and his status and expertise with horses eclipsed what was happening back at the barn. Children were persuaded to keep quiet for fear that their chances in competitions or their options for better horses would be negatively affected. Williams' enormous status in the horse show world served as a de facto silencer. So former student Carol, Karen Harold stated, For the riders, it was, oh God, I want to be the best rider. But for the parents, it was, oh my God, I want to be part of this. Hmm. Williams was viewed as a kingmaker. He was a go-to trainer for the ultra-ambitious. Former student Gigi Gaston, whose stepdaughter of industrialist J. Paul Getty, was one of the first to come forward. She stated that, quote, everyone always turned the other cheek. It was a system, end quote. So back in 1976, she had told adults about Williams' sexual misconduct, but Williams faced no repercussions nor restrictions within the equine community at the time. She recalled how Williams would shove her into a stall for kissing sessions, telling her, you're going to need to learn this for the world. Williams' assaults on Gaston continued from the age of 12 through 18. Francie Steinwelden Carvin recalled inappropriate behavior touching and other sexual advances from Williams and noted that the fact that her mother also rode at the club and was in fact the president of Flintridge and a close friend of Williams was not enough to protect her. Williams was untouchable. Hmm. So the carrot on the stick that Williams used over his students and their parents was his prestige as a trainer and the quality of horses he had in the stable. Parents wanted their children to be part of an elite winning program 
The environment at Flint Ridge was the equivalent of a gated community where undesirables were supposedly screened out and only the rich, talented, and beautiful were allowed in. Attorney Mike Reck described the culture of Flint Ridge as very insular, almost snobbish community. On the surface, it was supposed to not only be a safe place and a place of learning, but also a place where Olympic dreams were made. But the undercurrents of depravity and perversion were also always running close to the surface. William's successes in the show ring as a trainer granted him a huge amount of power, and this power, while often used in a positive way to gain top-notch placements back east for his students, who were moving up the ladder as riders and trainers, also meant that the power he yielded at home could be used to keep the young women quiet. Fear of retribution was a major factor for anyone who did speak out. Women felt they didn't have a choice but to be coached by Williams, and ambitious parents were willing to ignore warning signs for a shot at winning. <laughs> that was a quote. Just thinking back to your list of ri- famous writers, was there that many women that he that rose through the ranks to become great writers, or mostly mostly men? Mm, there were a lot of men, but there were there were quite a few women. Okay. Um, so Mary Mary Chapeau okay. was, I think, the first one that was mentioned, mm-hmm. and Krasinski. When we were in Europe that time, watching the Barcelona, a- Barcelona, yeah. yeah, that Olympics. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Anne Krasinski ride, and she had brought a very green horse, and he started stopping. Mm. I just remember her specifically she's the only rider i remember from that whole olympics but i remember watching that <laughs> yeah susan hutchison that's the one he ended up living with from eight when mm. she was 18 and he was 55 linda hoff who okay. used to be a columnist for practical horseman magazine her dad champ hoff was previously a columnist would have been a friend of him wow. yeah so but yeah, most of the other ones were men. But that's also something you see in the horse world is that the number of males in any given group of riders at the lower levels is very low. But I was going to say, it's disproportionate, yeah. the amount of men who are... Yes. So that's an interesting thing. And I've had people ask me many times, why is that? But uh, I, I can't really explain it. I remember... Watching the um, well, glass ceiling would be one. Yes, <laughs> one yeah, and um, yeah, watching the Olympics at uh, in Hong Kong, and just seeing, especially with the jumper riders. You know, although I did say that forward seat riding takes a little less muscle than say the old school European style, but even so, it seemed like the women riders often were struggling a okay. whole lot more. So hmm. there is the strength component of it. Sure. It's the um, at the Olympic level, it's the only place where women and men compete against each other. Yeah, yeah. So there's that, but um, yeah, probably a certain amount of ignorance of what a devol- what writing involves in, mm-hmm. that, in that situation. Yes, yeah. Because most, you know, the disciplines are divided because of you know the reality of different muscle masses mm-hmm. and, and fem- males and females. So yeah, it's interesting that they obviously think that riding is just sitting on a horse not controlling the horse, and, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah. And then I think, too, there is, you know, the having children thing, because whereas the odd person seems to be able to bounce back from that. Yeah. From personal experience, I never did. Yeah. And I remember a friend of mine who rode in the 88 Olympics talking about the woman who had been for years the top British event rider, Lucinda Pryor-Palmer, and I think she was like twice world champion and won badminton and 
everything like this. And then after she had her first child, it was just like fall off, fall off, fall off. Mm. Maybe she had fallen off before, but it just seemed to be disproportionately higher amount. Yeah. And I, I think... Um, core. Yeah, core. And I think too, I think it's just whatever happens to your pelvis when you're giving birth, you know, like all those ligaments stretch and everything. Yeah, and okay. Yeah, yeah sure. who knows? Because I remember reading in the olden days, like um, you'd read an old fashioned book and it was like, oh, she was the best rider, but she died in childbirth, you know? And so like oftentimes yeah. women, I've had many friends who who rode and had very difficult um, times giving birth. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I would be an example. Sure, yeah, sure. I couldn't do it, right? And after <laughs> two days... They had to chop me open and do a cesarean. So, yeah, I think it, it, um, all the muscles and ligaments around your pelvis, they are much, much tighter. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. just, uh, um, something you develop. So, mm, but mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know that anyone's ever looked into that. That is my personal theory. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Back, back to Jimmy Williams. So what he used was emotional coercion to get his way. So mm-hmm. this cultural power imbalance allowed Williams to take advantage of his students' desire and their parents' desire it's, for them to it's be It's funny we're talking about this. Sorry to interrupt, but mm-hmm. just because we uh, were just talking at lunch yes, about... Yeah. Maria, we were talking about Maria McKee, the singer, and talking about her experiences in the late 70s in the music scene and, and just how gross it was with mm-hmm. a lot of like mm-hmm. old guys from the 60s and stuff like that taking advantage of young girls and and it seems like the 70s was like this weird decade of like looking sideways at yes yeah or looking away from this sort of thing like yeah you the know. 60s had been the sexual revolution and in yeah. the 70s everyone's like i have no idea what's going on <laughs> yeah because i remember it was like, a, a fallout of the sexual revolution mm-hmm. people you didn't want to seem like a square by coming you know speaking out against sex yeah and so you're kind of stuck you're like well you know, sex is good. We've all agreed on that because that's the that's what the sixties told us. So, but how do we handle the fact that people are having the wrong sex? Like, it mm-hmm. is, it's yeah. Is there is there wrong sex? Yeah. Is it okay? And then also you put add to that the ambition of parents, mm-hmm. the you know the just the whole and drugs and all the rest of it. Yeah. This whole kind of c- scene of like of uh you know like how do you call it of excess of 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 license you Mm -hmm, know and then mm -hmm. you end up in this kind of situation where no i remember as a teenager having grown up in the 70s um that i would go to the movies every weekend and one weekend the movie was one called the pom-pom girls okay and basically in that movie it was just these guys drove around in a van kind of like scooby-doo's van um they had a mattress in the back and it was just like pick up girls have sex and like literally kick them out of the van like they were nothing but objects for having sex with, they were completely dehumanized. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what happened in the 70s. It's like, I think men kind of moved forward, but women thought they were moving forward, but... Yeah, the sexual revolution was not for women. No, It was no. entirely for men. Yeah. It's just license for men yeah. to Yeah, and I think women, there was yeah. a rise of, like, significant rise in pornography, having watched recently a documentary about New York and the pornography scene in the 70s, and that coincided with that as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, no, it was a, definitely an interesting time for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it was many of these, I think, these... Girls were just little kids, right? Yeah. Who loved ponies. Yeah. And got put in these situations. And I think their parents, you know, that phrase, turn a blind eye, I never really understood. Till I met your mom, because she does that. Um, 
<laughs> but I see now that some people can look right at something and mm-hmm. not see it. Yeah. Because they don't want to see it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I would guess they're, these kids' parents were not condoning it, but they just didn't want to see it. They didn't want to acknowledge it. Well, everyone else was... No one else is saying anything. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Like, yeah. you know... Yeah. So, yeah. Having said that, one of the things that I read, I couldn't find it again when I was reading it this time through because I'd read this story a few years before, but... Um, some of the people, I think it was in this um, Chronicle of the Horse who first broke the story. Yeah. And they've got kind of an online thing and people just like leave all these comments. And one girl said, oh, I remember going there. My parents saying, oh, we need to go ride with Jimmy Williams and mm. bundled the family up in the station wagon. And they drove in and got shown around and met him and saw the whole thing and... And then the dad's just like, nope, we're not, we're not staying here. And we all got put back in there and we drove away and no one ever talked about it again. And she said, I was mad because I wanted to ride there. Yeah. I wanted to ride with him. But every time it got brought up, we were just shut down. Uh. She says, I see now my parents saw something. Yeah, yeah. But that's not what they wanted for me. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that now. I didn't appreciate it then. But it was also something we couldn't have talked about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you probably. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they could have talked about it, I suppose. But, mm-hmm. but you're not. You. They have no evidence. They're just like going by a feel, mm-hmm. like the bad vibes or whatever. But, right. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Ambitious young riders who wanted to reach the elite level of competition were encouraged to submit to the godlike trainer. And many times people referred to him as he was God. He was mm-hmm. godlike. Yeah. Uh, his unorthodox training methods, his movie star good looks, and man's man's persona might have been enough on their own to attract and maintain clients. But the fact that he was the winningest, winningest trainer on the West Coast, the man with connections to those in power on the East Coast and in the U.S. equestrian team were usually enough to convince even more dubious parents. Ambitious parents, on the other hand, needed no convincing. Money people flocked to him. So in a story about Jimmy and his legendary horse training abilities, it was stated that the key to Jimmy's training and teaching techniques was that he followed no rules. He just used what worked. So it could be said that his approach to people was the same. Hmm. So Julie Boyer rode at Flint Ridge from 1974 to 1976. She was 15 when she arrived and the abuse started soon after. She stated that, quote, he would open his mouth and stick his tongue down your throat, end quote. Kissing and touching soon evolved into Williams forcing Boye to form, perform oral sex. She said, quote, he pretty much threatened me that I could not stay there, that somehow or other I'd get kicked out if I didn't do this thing that he had to teach me how to do, end quote. While attending a three-week horse show at Del Mar, Williams made Boye opened the door of her hotel room to him, and then he raped her. On another occasion, he told her mother the two were going out of town to look at horses for sale, and instead he checked them into a hotel and assaulted her. The abuse continued for two years until she left Flint Ridge at age 17. So the abuse was widespread, and for many it was a poorly kept secret. Former student C.C. Durante Bloom stated, He would try to French kiss all of us. The culture at Flint Ridge and at the shows in the surrounding areas was one in which the equine community looked away while Williams kissed and groped young girls, often publicly and always with impunity. 
Riders recalled that William's M.O. would be to corner them in a horse stall, pin them against a wall, and either force his tongue in their mouths, their hands down his pants, or both. He claimed he needed to teach them how to perform these acts to make their boyfriends happy. Some girls learned to avoid the barns. One recalls that she took to wearing a camera around her neck, so it was uncomfortable for Williams to press himself against her. Williams was getting horses from the nearby Santa Anita racetrack and retraining them for sale, or for use by the riders at Flintridge. Karen Harold recalls that riders who stayed silent received better access to horses. The unspoken rule was of not saying anything, not divulging anything. Harold went on to describe how Williams wielded carrot and stick to ensure silence in exchange for better horses to ride for those who were compliant and threats they'd fail in the sport without him as coach. <laughs> Attorney Mike Reck has stated that the prestige as coaches, access to resources and influence gave them, so trainers, enormous power over the careers of young equestrians. They took full advantage of this power while the greater equestrian community turned a blind eye to the abuse of minors for decades. Multiple Olympic medalist Anne Krasinski started riding at Flintridge as a four-year-old, and after progressing through the ranks of the beginner trainers at Flintridge, found herself at 11, graduating to Jimmy Williams, which she described as a really big deal. I was only 11, still quite young. I was, it was so exciting. To get to ride with Jimmy was like riding with God. <laughs> Sadly, the elation did not last long, as Williams quickly made his signature move on Krasinski, which was to assault her in the stables. She recalled that, quote, he tasted of alcohol whenever he pinned her in the horse stall, end quote. Krasinski was only 11 when Williams started kissing her, and then the abuse got worse. She stated, quote, he penetrated me when I was 11. I was a little kid, and he was God. End quote. Krasinski went on to endure six years of continual rape. So the abuse and inappropriate behavior were not just purely physical. Karen Harold recalls that I'd be riding in the ring and Jimmy would come up alongside me and walk alongside. He'd always be on a horse in the ring and he'd tell me horrible sexual stories about how to turn on a woman and his own sexual experiences. Susan Lorenzo Langer stated that Quote, for Jimmy Williams to invite you to his house, even if it was to chase you and molest you, he was a magician with horses. We were so in awe of him. He was so famous. He was a movie star. I was a kid. End quote. <laughs> so Alan Balk, past president of Flintridge Riding Club, was partway through riding, writing Williams' biography when he received a call from a parent of one of Williams' victims. She told him that both her daughter and a friend had been molested by Williams. Balk confronted Williams, who denied the accusations. Williams attributed the accusations to competitive rivalry spurring the claims. Balk was satisfied with this answer and stated, Jimmy Williams never claimed impeccable personal virtue. The investigation went no further. Another past president of Flintridge stated that Williams just kissed everyone indiscriminately, so she never thought anything of it. She claimed that no one ever, during her time as president, had a complaint about Williams, but also stated that she believed no one would have complained to her, as she and Williams were very close friends. Years after Williams' death, a change in the laws in both New York and California permitted extensions to the statute of limitations for survivors of sexual abuse. This opened the way for the allegations to finally come to light, but the news of Jimmy's misdeeds were not always well received. <laughs> Many of the people who knew and had been supporters of Jimmy were angered at the allegations. Many felt it was unfair for the accusations to come to light 20 years after William's death. Many blamed the victims. 
Some went so far as to argue that the young riders had actually pursued Williams rather than Williams doing the pursuing. Others attributed Williams' behavior to the social mores of a different era. Trainer Hap Hansen stated that he had witnessed kissing and touching girls and women, but believed it was consensual. It is important to recognize, however, that in cases of sexual abuse such as these, the victims are being groomed for sexual advances and are vulnerable. They may feel shame or they may feel flattered that someone they idolize is sexually attracted to them. It may take a long time to untangle these threads. William's fame most likely prevented many from questioning him sooner, and the situation highlights the power imbalance inherent between a student, especially a minor, and a trainer. So, yeah, as a coach, I've just had to go through all this uh, ethics in sports and safe sports stuff. So, as you mentioned before, the thing with the gymnastics coach, Mm -hmm. yeah. Timeline here. So, timeline 1968, and 14-year-old show-jumping phenom Melissa Carendez is scouted at a local horse show by Williams, who approaches her mother with an offer to train Melissa. Once an agreement was reached, Williams followed Melissa back to the barn, where she began grooming her horse. Williams then throws his arm over her in an avuncular way and then shoved his tongue down her throat. She immediately told her mother, who did not believe her, because, after all, it was Jimmy Williams. The plan for teaching proceeds. Williams then sexually abused Carendus for the next three years. 1976, 15-year-old Gigi Gaston is invited to Jimmy Williams' bungalow, which was situated ringside behind a hedge at the Flint Ridge grounds. Williams exposed himself to her and attempted to push her mouth onto his penis. Her braces scratched his penis, and when he jumped back, she made her escape. She immediately informed several adults in the vicinity, who then all confronted Williams together. Gaston believes any investigation stopped there as Williams talked his way out of it, and the incident never got reported to those running Flintridge or anyone higher up. 1988. The U.S. Equestrian Federation plans to create a Lifetime Achievement Award that will be named the Jimmy A. Williams Lifetime Achievement Award. Jane Forbes Clark, first VP of the U.S. Equestrian Federation, is warned of Williams' rumored misconduct by an unnamed source just before the trophy is inaugurated. She does not investigate, beyond calling friend Frank Chapeau, whose wife, Mary Mary Chapeau, was a former student of Williams. Forbes Clark does not take the issue to the board or speak to any other authorities about the allegations. (laughs) 1989, the U.S. Equestrian Federation Jimmy Williams Lifetime Achievement Award is created and presented to its first recipient, Jimmy A. Williams. 1990, multiple Olympian Anne Krasinski has been undergoing therapy for the sexual abuse she endured while training with Williams. It is when she undertakes a step where she has to say it out loud, talk about it, and share it with those close to her that she learns that Williams had also sexually abused her sister Lisa. Up until that time, Krasinski had thought she was the only one. She then reaches out to friend Francie Stein-Weldon and learns that she too was repeatedly assaulted by Williams. The pair meet up, find an old logbook of riders who are at Flintridge with them at teens, and begin making phone calls. They learn that many of their peers were similarly sexually abused by Williams. Spring 1993. Lisa and Anne Krasinski, 
Gigi Gaston, Karen Harold, and Francie Steinwelden Carvin all meet in Santa Monica to begin group therapy. Unfortunately, the statute of limitations on sexual assault had run out, so the group are powerless to legally do anything more. October 4, 1993, Jimmy Williams dies of respiratory failure. 2013, the Safe Sport Initiative is conceived of as a way to help keep athletes in all sports at all levels all across the country safe from sexual abuse. June 11, 2015, the Show Jumping Hall of Fame in Lexington, Kentucky holds a special meeting. Jimmy Williams, who had been inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2019, is removed as an inductee. Board members cited under the rules for inductees into the Show Jumping Hall of Fame the bylaws concerning an individual's integrity and character. Behind the scenes, it was Ann Krasinski and other riders who had suffered at the hands of Williams who were responsible for mounting the pressure needed to ensure this happened. <laughs> 2016, Flint Ridge Riding Club quietly dropped the name of Jimmy Williams from its Jimmy Williams Oval, their main competition ring. 2017, the U.S. Equestrian Federation quietly drops Jimmy Williams' name from their Lifetime Achievement Award. Then, when asked about the change, U.S. Equestrian Federation President Christine Tauber states the reasons were purely bureaucratic. <laughs> I guess they're worried about litigation. Yeah, they were. 2017, Chronicle of the Horse Reporter Bailey reaches out to Olympian Ann Krasinski as one of Williams' most successful longtime former students to inquire about rumors she was hearing about Williams. Krasinski agrees to talk about what has happened between her and Williams. April 2018, Bailey publishes her story in the Chronicle of the Horse. April 18, 2018, the Flint Ridge Riding Club released a statement that the club would remove from their publicity any affiliation with him. All pictures and paintings of Williams, as well as his trophies, have been removed. The show Jumping Stadium ring, which was named after him, is now called Ring One. May 14, 2018, U.S. Equestrian Federation bans Jimmy Williams from his membership, a move that occurs 24 years, 6 weeks, and 14 days after his death. May 29, 2018, the New York Times publishes an extensively researched article written by Sarah Maslin Neer that puts all the allegations about William's sexual misconduct squarely in the public eye. Summer 2018, the board of the U.S. Equestrian Federation meets to acknowledge that boundaries have been breached in this case as well as others. They recognize that simply erasing William's name from the books was insufficient. The Safe Sport Initiative was introduced for coaches and those working with youth. 2019, Legislators passed the California Child Victims Act, CAAB 218, which is enacted to protect victims of sexual assault. Now victims are allowed to file until the age of 40. January 1st, 2020, the California Child Victims Act comes into effect. August 5th, 2020, Gigi Gaston files a lawsuit against Flint Ridge Riding Club and the U.S. Equestrian Federation, alleging premises liability, negligence, negligent supervision, negligent retention, negligent failure to train, warn, or educate, sexual battery, sexual harassment, and gender violence. <laughs> May 2nd, 2021, Julie Boyer files a lawsuit alleging sexual harassment, negligence, and related claims. May 4th, 2021, another woman files suit against the now-deceased Jimmy Williams, Flint Ridge Riding Club, the U.S. Equestrian Federation, and the USA Equestrian Trust, alleging that the organizations were negligent for exposing her and others to Williams and providing him with housing on the riding club grounds. January 21st, 2022, Boye and Gaston motion for consolidation of their cases. The motion is granted. So, in conclusion, the fallout. 
Rob Gage, who was previously mentioned as a noteworthy student of Jimmy Williams from the Flint Ridge days, went on to become a successful trainer and judge in his own right. However, it appears that he learned more than just horse sense from his mentor, as around the same time as Jimmy Williams' accusations were being made, similar charges of widespread and repeated sexual abuse of students dating back to the 1980s were being filed with Safe Sport against Gage. One of the first to come forward was Hilary Kuhn Ridland, wife of another former Jimmy Williams student, Robert Ridland, who is now coach of the U.S. Olympic show jumping team and has been since 2013. One of Gage's tactics was to give each of his conquests a necklace with the pendant SG for secret girlfriend. Monique Hansen, another student. <laughs> what was that? That's an ugh. I know. So Monique Hansen, another student of Rob Gage, stated that he said we would get married when I was 18 and have kids and a barn and ride in the Olympics together. He said we would be this super equestrian couple, and I fell for it. Rob Gage ultimately received a lifetime ban from Safe Sport. In June 2019, Rob Gage committed suicide at his barn. I actually... He had a thing called Judge My Ride on Facebook. Yeah. And you would yeah, send in pictures and he would comment on it as a judge. And yeah, I remember that blowing up at that time. Huh. So Mike Reck, lawyer for Gaston and others, has stated that the future of children of the equestrian community are safer because these men are now gone. Alan F. Balk, who is writing the biography of Jimmy Williams and made an attempt to investigate some of the claims, had an impressive resume of numerous administrative roles in the horse world, including senior VP of marketing at Santa Anita Racetrack, competition manager at Del Mar and the 1984 LA Olympics, announcer at the National Horse Show at Madison Square Gardens, the World Championships in Kentucky and at Devon. He served as president of the National Horse Show Association and USA Equestrian. He was a director for the USA Equestrian Trust and trustee or director of both the U.S. Equestrian Team and the American Horse Show Association. He was president of the American Horse Show Association from 1997 through to 2009 when the organization transitioned into the U.S. Equestrian Federation, a move made with the guiding principles of inclusion and openness. In talking about his role in these organizations, he referred to himself as an agent for change. Falk also noted that he had spent an inordinate time around horse trainers. It was simple hero worship. That was a quote. Falk also was past president of Flint Ridge Riding Club. Gigi Gaston is now a filmmaker. She has stated that accountability matters. No child should have to endure what I did. And I'm doing this to make kids of today safer. No institution should care more about its own reputation than child safety. Karen Harold now works in breast cancer research. Julie Boyer continues to compete with her horses in the sport of three-day eventing. Lisa Kurzinski became a hunter-jumper trainer, but sadly died of a rare form of liver cancer at age 48. Francie Steinwelden Carvin has struggled with drug and alcohol addiction throughout her life, which she attributes to the abuse she suffered at the hands of Jimmy Williams. She's a horse trainer who owns and runs Meadowgrove Farm in Lakeview Terrace, California, with her husband, trainer Richard Carvin Jr. Fran Steinwelden, mother of Francie, has been a 40-plus year supporter of the U.S. Equestrian Federation and has loaned numerous horses to the team, most of which were ridden by Ann Krasinski, including Starman, who brought home an Olympic team silver medal from Barcelona, and Eros, who brought home team silver from the Atlanta Olympics and won two Nations Cups. 
Steinwelden is the past president of Flint Ridge Riding Club, who worked closely with Jimmy Williams in developing the sport of show jumping on the West Coast. She was inducted into the U.S. Show Jumping Hall of Fame in 2017. Anne Krasinski went on to become an incredibly successful rider and trainer, including representing the USA in three Olympic Games, Korea in 88, Barcelona in 92, and Atlanta in 96. And she was awarded two team silvers and placed fourth individually in Atlanta with her horse Starman. Krasinski stated that the effect the abuse had on her, quote, and the rest of her life, it's awful. I grew up with the shame and guilt and secrets and hiding, end quote. Following her abuse, she reports that therapy got her through, she achieved forgiveness, and even got an apology, which she said was wild. She had confronted Williams in his barn as part of her recovery process, and after much back and forth, finally got this from Williams. I'm sorry. I never meant to hurt you. Ultimately, she said, the horses were my savior. She says of Williams, I still have to say he was a genius, but he was sick. <laughs> Since the allegations have been made public, Krasinski has teamed up with Diane Lang, U.S. Equestrian Federation Youth Directors, to support and advocate for the U.S. Center for Safe Sport to be incorporated into the U.S. Equestrian Federation. Krasinski recognizes a need for victims to be able to access an independent path to report abuse. Flint Ridge Riding Club will be celebrating its 100th anniversary in the 2022-2023 season. Its website prominently promotes safe sport and the club now advertises that all of its coaches and trainers are safe sport certified. Regarding Jimmy Williams, on behalf of Flint Ridge, then-president Susan Osimo shared this statement with the Chronicle of the Horse. Quote, Over three years ago, Flint Ridge Riding Club severed all affiliation with Jimmy Williams following first-time reporting of critical credible allegations of sexual assault and misconduct by Williams, including allegations involving minors. Related allegations have now been brought against Flint Ridge under California's Child Victims Act, raising questions about what, if anything, the club knew about Williams' misconduct from the 1970s until his death in 1993. Flint Ridge Riding Club is unequivocal in our support of the U.S. Equestrian Federation barring of Williams from its membership in 2018, and similarly timed retirements of its Lifetime Achievement Award named for him. Flint Ridge in 2018 likewise removed all trophies and other recognition of Williams at our facility, including renaming the ring, bearing his name, end quote. Jimmy A. Williams died on October 4th, 1993, at age 76 of respiratory failure in the hospital of the Good Samaritan after having recently undergone gone a second heart bypass surgery. There was no funeral, although it was requested that any memorial donations go to the American Horse Show Association or the U.S. Equestrian Team. He is survived by one daughter, Linda Ray Simons of Carson City, Nevada, and his longtime partner and former student, Susan Hutchison. William's name was posthumously added to and is now a permanent fixture at the top of the U.S. Equestrian Federation's list of banned and suspended offenders. Williams was never officially charged with any crime. Even this long after his passing, and with the allegations now made public, many riders and trainers who had been students of Jimmy Williams still refer to him as, quote, the most important equine influence in their lives, end quote. This includes some of the women he abused. The end. You look sad. Yeah, that's the, that's the first time I've... Had tears in my eyes through <laughs> one of our shows. That yeah. was uh, very upsetting. Mm-hmm. It's too bad that he didn't survive to face the destruction of, of all his 
all his uh, achievements, you know, to see his name removed from Lifetime Achievement Awards and from rings and all the things, mm-hmm. he died with the idea that my legacy will live on despite, I don't even know if he realized what he had done no, was terrible. No, I don't terrible. think he would have realized he wasn't that sort of a person. And it's sad in another way that here's this person who was who had the opportunity to leave behind an incredible legacy of teaching and and uh, teaching and training and you know creating you know basically with the help of other people but basically like bringing show jumping to to the west coast mm-hmm. like creating a whole you know change in how horses were trained and how and how kids could be taught and, and all this opportunity for him to make like a a, a, le- a legacy with the lasted beyond his life and instead he just created like this toxic poisonous swamp that you know uh, obviously people came out of it the the ones who could endure it came out of it and were able to achieve something but you know that's discounting all the ones who fell to the side mm-hmm, who were mm-hmm. just destroyed by this yeah and yeah it's just sad Sad all around. Mm-hmm. And maybe it is an illness. I don't know. I mean, obviously he did. There was pedophilia mixed in with just plain old gross, uh, you know, taking advantage of, of. Yeah, just generalized lechery. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's. I think it was just take as much as you can. I know it, it bothers people when I want to draw the line between pedophilia and just, you know, having sex with with underage girls or whatever, but there is a difference. And, but obviously you cross that line as well. Like just all out, just a horrible monster. And I guess in a way that we say, although, you know, it's anyway, black. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully the next one is a really happy one, dear. Cause this one really <laughs> made, made me sad. I know it made you sad. I'm sorry. Oh, um, well, I can't say the next one's happy, but it's different. If it's just good old murder and mayhem, I'm all aboard. <laughs> like last episode, we were talking about some woman, poor poor woman. Was it last time we talked about the woman? Anyway, we talked about, oh no, it was Miriam Bridge last time, who shot a man to death. And right. I was laughing it up and joking away. And then we do this one and I'm just like, it's quiet as a, it's quiet as a mouse because I've just got nothing I can't. Besides going, huh, or whatever. It's just. Yeah. What, what can you say? It's just so it's tragic and awful. Yeah. yeah. It's awful, awful all around. Okay. I just feel, it's, I know it's terrible to f- feel something for the the person who did the terrible things, but I just think like, what a lost opportunity for for a human, you know, like just to destroy everything around you, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's horrible. You know, it's, obviously he felt like he was perfectly safe to do this. There's no, there's no one playing breaks, not, not just himself, but no one around him mm-hmm. could say to him, like, knock it off, yeah. you know, like just stop it here and you know take just but no no one and we've talked about the licentiousness of the 70s and that's obviously part of it but just yeah just the whole sickness of a institution like that and it sounds like a great place Flynn Ridge, but i don't know if a place should be able to survive <laughs> that past mm-hmm. i don't know if it should be allowed to continue yeah it's uh i, yeah. I imagine it's gonna get sued into the ground anyway probably yeah. and that'll be the end of it mm-hmm. it's sad but you know, you make your bed, mm-hmm. and and I know the people who run it now have had little to do with this. But mm-hmm. you know, the people who ran it then, who had a, a opportunity to stop it, didn't. And this is the legacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, although I'm a, you know, I'm a very traditional conservative person, I hate to see any kind of change, and it bothers me when institutions are destroyed by progress. But this this 
mowed over it. Just get rid of it. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, because then, yeah, you're depriving the current generation of... Well, something else will come in its wake. I mean, mm -hmm. it won't disappear entirely, but I feel like the, the Flint Ridge itself, the name and everything else around it should be... Yeah, I mean, maybe it just needs to be um, yeah, rebranded as something else. But yeah, it, it is a sad story for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can claim, oh, we do safe sport and stuff like that, but you've already got all the bodies mm -hmm. buried around your... Mm -hmm. your riding facility so yes you are now a safe sport place but for for whatever 40 mm -hmm. 50 years you had a, a you know a place that was like a center of of terrible abuse for people mm -hmm. and yeah i mean you can say the same thing about the gymnastics yes yeah. training centers you know like yeah that deprives kids of the opportunity to train but also does it deprive them the opportunity to be molested by someone else who can take advantage mm -hmm. of people mm -hmm. It seems like anywhere you have institutions that have children in its charge, this is where this is what happens. Yeah, yeah, because we've just gone through the yeah truth and reconciliation thing with here the, in Canada. Yeah, yeah. First Nations um, with the terrible residential school system yeah. that was, you know, whether it was well-meaning or not, it was al almost right away obvious that it was ripe for, you know, taking advantage of people. That there was disproportionate amounts of deaths in these schools, mm -hmm. and. And then also just the fact that, yeah, it just attracts creeps who come in and want to take advantage of it. And then institutions are designed to cover their asses, mm -hmm. not to deal with problems, yeah. you know. And so all it becomes is like this, you know, hiding of the bodies and hiding everything. Mm -hmm. And all, you know, just doesn't, don't, they don't take care of anything. So it is, so, you know, it's what, what do we do? I don't know. I mean, I think it's good that something like Canadian Pony Club exists as a, organization that's ground up not top down mm -hmm. you know it's the parents who are running the individual yeah, activities acti clubs and yeah. stuff like that so the clubs are not in the control of like a, a organization who is mm -hmm. like running the show from above right you know so and then there's also a constant turnover of of, mm -hmm. of people as well so you don't have like long-term you know people who are there for a long time that can allow this sort of stuff to creep into it and overlook it and excuse it and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, you made me sad. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. <clears throat> it's wow. worth talking about. Yes. It's so important to talk about these things, you know, yeah. so yeah, as upsetting as it is. Mm -hmm. Well, next time it'll be a medical mystery. So. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> all right, everyone. Oh, we did have a comment on the website. So this is actually from Chris wrote in, and let me just say, Chris is the composer of the theme music and the interstitial music that plays during the show. So I know we've said it before, but thanks again, Chris, so much for providing that for us. It's yes. always a joy to add that to the podcast while I'm editing it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Chris. And so Chris wrote in to say, he says, hey, you guys haven't said enough about me writing this. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> uh, Chris wrote in to say, it's good to have the both of you back as someone or other once sang. Another jaw-dropping story of skullduggery, deceit. This is uh, the first episode, by the way. So, because Weaverage was less uh, skullduggery and deceit, it was more like uh, I don't know what it was. <laughs> Some sort of, uh, I guess, brain injury. He says another jaw-dropping story of skullduggery, deceit. Uh, deceit. You know, deceit. Yeah. It's a commonly right used thing. It's always coming up. It's in Wordle. Uh, deceit and most likely murder, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Even though I admit I lost track of who was doing what, somewhere around the time wicked old Uncle Silas made a surprise reappearance. What a twist! <laughs> 
The setup to Helen Brock's disappearance reminded me so much of all those early Columbo episodes where, let's say, Bradford Dillman would confront brother and business partner, let's say, Ray Milland, with a phrase like, I know what you've been up to, Rupert. I've got all the evidence here in this envelope, which I keep in my unlocked desk, and I'm taking it to the police. First thing tomorrow morning! <laughs> Rookie error, Mrs. B. Keep horsing around mysteriously. Thank you, Chris. It is true. I think I mentioned during the show that classic moment of, of you know, it's a common in the old radio shows, which is the guy on the phone saying, uh, I've got all the information here. I'll meet up at such and such. And then that's when they turn up dead, of course. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah, just tell him over the phone. You're on the phone. Why do you have to wait? It's a phone. I can't tell you this. It's too important to say over the phone. <laughs> I have to deliver it in person. All right, dead person. Whatever you say. But anyway. Just sign your death warrant. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. So what... Uh, we now we now know that it's a uh, medical mystery, but what is the, the title? title? Yeah, the Lost Generation. The Lost Generation sounds good, everyone. And so, if you enjoy this show, please feel free to be like Chris and write into our, our show and tell us how much you enjoy it, or to make a comment on things we talk about, or ask Lisa more questions about teeth. You can do that by going to sneakydragon.com. That is our website. There you'll find the show with a. Uh, commentary underneath where you're more than welcome to leave a comment for us. Hey, we also have an email address at sneakyd at sneakydragon.com and you can leave, um, you can send us messages there, of course. You know, we're also around in other ways and we're going to make up some other ways to contact us pretty soon if I can ever get my uh, B in G. So, everyone, look forward to that and look forward to us in a bye week coming back to you. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't use bye week. That's my uh, listening party term that drove Mary insane. <laughs> We'll be back in two weeks, everyone. So uh, keep horsing around, I guess, as Chris said. Bye.